can the book of Revelation really be understood amidst all the prophetic language and mysterious symbols? How is it relevant to the 21st century? What is the controversy between good and evil all about? How and when will it end? These and many other questions will be answered, providing amazing clarity to the conditions we see in our world today. This seminar will bring you face-to-face with Jesus in a new and wonderful way, leading you to the most momentous decisions of your life. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Revelation. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Revelation Prophecy Seminar, lesson number 12, the two worldwide movements. Let's have a look at our discovery questions for tonight. Number one, what do the two olive trees and the two lampstands or the candlesticks actually represent? Number two, what does olive oil mean? Three, what nation actually killed the Bible? Number four, how many years did the persecution actually last? And number five, when did that period of persecution really start and finish? So it's my pleasure to welcome you to Two Worldwide Movements Unveiled. In this particular lesson, which is quite fascinating, it's a deep study of history, the history of the world, Um, we are going to encounter two movements, two um, opposing movements, which are actually to do with what God has been doing on planet Earth and also what Satan, the devil, has been doing on planet Earth. So if we pull back that curtain on the front page of our lessons and have a look, what are we going to see? In Revelation chapter 11, we are introduced to a fearful beast from the bottomless pit. And this beast stands for atheism and its twin evolution, because evolution actually springs from atheism. But it is countered by another great movement, and that movement comes from God, and that's the positive news tonight. And that is the movement that celebrates the three angels' message, which are, number one, that we worship God, the creator, that number two, that we are to leave Babylon and not go back, and number three, that we are to receive the seal of God in opposition to the mark of the beast. So, friends, let's pray as we open this session. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we would ask for wisdom, understanding, and a special blessing as we open your word in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So, friends, I'd like to thank you and welcome you to Revelation chapter uh, 11. And we're studying tonight session number 12, Two Worldwide Movements Unveiled. Let's get started. Right now, millions of people are at war with each other. Nearly 100 million are being killed in battle since World War II. War may emerge anywhere, it seems, by force and innocent people to flee. Homes, families, jobs and security 
are suddenly disrupted and controlled by the enemy. People in such crises realize they may be dead by nightfall. Such happenings are without question, tragedies of the first magnitude. Who can measure the trauma and the anguish involved? While the final countdown for this earth nears the zero hour, every person on earth is making decisions that will determine his or her eternal destiny. Millions are wondering which way to turn and what choices to make. But Satan is determined to draw the multitudes of earth into his camp. His philosophies and theories seem to have a bewitching effect upon people. In fact, his movement is unveiled in Revelation chapter 11. It is engulfing millions. But God has a grand message of hope and deliverance for his people in these desperate hours. Further, he promises that his message will sweep across the entire world quickly in our day. His magnificent message is found in Revelation chapter 14 in the messages of the three angels that we will study in this session. So friends, these two worldwide movements unveiled are two movements that are diametrically opposed. There's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the basis of the first, and then the evolutionary theory, which is the basis of the second in 2 Peter 3, 3 to 6. The theory of evolution has swept into and captured the American school system and school systems around the world, in spite of the fact that God condemns it as science falsely so-called and philosophy and vain deceit in 1 Timothy 6.20 and Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. You know, God's message provides a joyous way out of today's confusion, heartache and crisis. But Satan's plan is to lead us to personal trauma, woe and destruction. In today's seminar, we will see what Revelation tells us about these two movements. It's difficult to properly stress the importance of this seminar subject. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 11 first. So please join me at the top of page two in the study guide. If you're watching this online on YouTube, then you may also download the study guide under the description bar under this video. So we're asking you to please study carefully Exhibit 1, which is now on the screen, which explains the symbols of this chapter, chapter 11, before beginning the lesson, and refer to the exhibit often for documentation of this lesson. So if you're watching online, you might like to pause this presentation and take time to read through this background, historical background. We do not have time to go through all of this tonight. Thank you so much. So here we are in two worldwide messages unveiled, and we are starting in section number one. Our heading is God's two witnesses and question one. Revelation 11 features God's two witnesses. It describes shameful treatment given them and their ultimate victory over their persecutors. So just our 
who are these two witnesses? So we're going to go to our source document tonight, our Revelation chapter 11, and look at verses 3 and 4. God says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. We're in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, is our answer, standing before the God of the earth. So, friends, we're asking Revelation 11 features God's two witnesses, right? It describes shameful treatment given them and their ultimate victory over their persecutors. We're asking exactly who are these two witnesses. The scripture tells us clearly these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. Here is an illustrator's description of this. You'll notice they've illustrated the two trees, the two candlesticks in both the trees and also the two lampstands. So that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Let's go to the note. Please have a look at the screen. As demonstrated in Exhibit 1, the two witnesses, the two olive trees and the two candlesticks, all refer to the same thing, which is very simply the Old and the New Testaments, which were inspired by the Holy Ghost. I'd like you to pause there, and before we go on to question two, um, I'd actually like to give you some extra information that reminds us that the book of Revelation is continually built on the Old Testament. If you'd like to write this, this into your lesson guides, please write in Zechariah 4 and verses 1 to 6. This is the background to Revelation 11. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament, wrote this. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. So this is a vision or a dream that Zechariah is going through. We're into Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 2, extra information not in the lesson guide. And the angel said unto me, Zechariah, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Zechariah 4.4. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So what is this special word from the Lord? God's word. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, how many times are we confronted with almost unmovable problems and obstacles in our life and we forget this great scriptural promise? We are often depending on human power and human might, aren't we? 
but God says, lift your eyes to the heavens and rely on the power of my Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Friends, do you remember in Old Testament times, the prophet Samuel actually anointed the head of David when he was anointed to be the next king. Oil in scripture is always a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go a little bit further and think about how the Holy Spirit gave us the word of God, the Old and New Testaments. For prophecy never came by the will of man, meaning the prophets didn't make up the scriptures, but holy men of God, meaning the prophets, spoke as they were moved or driven or inspired by who? The Holy Spirit. So once the Holy Spirit had inspired the holy men of God, the prophets, what did we end up with? Psalm 119.105, your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Friends, God's word is a powerful light. And I'm wanting to challenge you right now. Are you depending on God's word every day and especially every morning to light up the road ahead for you every day? We live in a world of darkness and fear, crushing fear, fear of famine, fear of war, fear of unemployment, fear of sickness, fear of relationship breakups. And friends, God's word, as you can see on the screen, lights the dark pathway ahead. In fact, it's more powerful than that. It is a mighty lighthouse that will light up the way and the future, not only for us and our families, but also for others. And that's why I love studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is God's light and pathway into the future. And I think it's absolutely exciting. Would you join me for question two in our lesson guide halfway down page two? This is the big question. Verse 2 of Revelation 11 speaks of a time period of 42 months when God's people, otherwise described here as the holy city, were to be trodden underfoot or persecuted. That's verse 2 of Revelation 11. Verse 3 of Revelation 11 speaks of a time period of 1260 days when the two witnesses that we now know is the Bible containing the Old Testament and the New Testament, they had to prophesy in sackcloth. They were under attack during the 1260 days under the most trying circumstances. Now, using the prophetic rule of one prophetic day equals one literal year, how long were these time periods? We're directed to Revelation 11 and verse 1. Let's have a look at verse 1 and go from there. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, this is John the Revelator writing, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. Revelation 11 verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Friends, when you read this and did your homework, I'm sure 
that you are wondering what that means. Let me share some extra information. Let's summarize Revelation 11, 1 and 2. In the last days, God's people, represented by the temple and the holy city, God's people will be measured or judged, but the wicked or the Gentiles will not be measured at this time as they will persecute God's true witnesses, in other words, the Old Testament, New Testament, and God's followers for 1260 days or years. That's Revelation 11, 1 and 2. So God's getting a last day people ready for heaven, and so they are the first ones to be judged. We know in 1 Peter 4, 17, that judgment begins at the house of the righteous. God's people are judged first, giving the wicked extra time to repent. Revelation 11.3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Using the prophetic rule of one prophetic day equals one literal year, how long were these time periods? The answer is 1,260 years. Let's give you some more detail on that. The note says, 42 prophetic months and 1,260 prophetic days equal the same amount of time. That is 1,260 literal years. So, friends, on the screen, you'll notice there in Daniel 7.25 and Daniel 12.7, the same time period is referenced as a time times and half a time. In Revelation 12.6, it's called 1260 days. In Revelation 12.14, it's called a time times and half a time. And in Revelation 13.5, it's 42 months. How can those three different names actually add up to the same amount? Let me just give you a reminder of where we've been in previous lessons. So in Jewish, in Jewish times, a time was a calendar year made up of 360 days, which was 12 months of 30 days in the month. So a time was one year or 360 days. Times was two years, two times 360 or 720. Half a time or half a year was 180 days, and that all adds up to 1260. But it also can be described as 42 months. Three and a half years of 42 months by 30 days, and that also comes to 1260 days. Now, Ezekiel 4, 6 says that God says, I've laid on you a day for each year. So that is another example of the prophetic time period. We're in question three at the bottom of page two. Thank you for joining us for session 12. When did this 1260 years of unusual persecution take place? And we are directed to the Exhibit 2 in Lesson 12. Friends, this is a massive study. We do not have time to go through this tonight. In fact, it's pretty much a study of the Old Testament book of Daniel, which would be Daniel chapter 7. So, friends, it is actually um, talking here about the 1260 years. I want to talk to you about point number seven. So we don't have time to go through that whole exhibit, but I do want to go through point number seven. You'll see there on the right-hand side, halfway down page three. So I'm going to read point seven there, and I'm going to illustrate it. So please direct your attention to the screen. Friends, the papacy's power became supreme in Christendom or Christianity in 538 AD due to the letter 
of Roman Emperor Justinian, which acknowledged the Bishop of Rome as the head of all the churches. This letter became part of Justinian's code, the fundamental law of the empire. So let's go to some evidence for this. This is extra material. So here's uh, the history of the Christian church, volume three, page 327. It, it there says, Vigilus ascended the papal chair or the papal throne in 538 AD. We're looking for the start of the 1260-day year time prophecy under the military protection of Belisarius. Now, Belisarius was Emperor Justinian's general. So Belisarius allows Vigilus, that is Pope Vigilus, to ascend the papal chair in 538 AD, and that is the beginning of this 1260-year period. I read on in point seven in the exhibit on page three. The papal power was broken in 1798 AD when Napoleon's general Berthier took the Pope captive and he died in exile. So the note says there in 1798 he... General Berthier or General Berthier made his entrance into Rome. This is the Encyclopedia Americana. And there he abolished the papal government and established a secular one. So, friends, the Pope was taken captive on February 20 in the year 1798. Notice the amount of years from 538 AD to 1798. It's exactly 1260 as prophecy predicted. And I just want to remind you that uh, a Bible prophecy, a Bible principle in prophecy is one day stands for one year. So there's our answer. When did this 1260 year of years of unusual persecution take place? From 538 to 1798 AD is when it took place. Friends, there's no time tonight to commence a study on this exhibit, which actually covers all of Daniel chapter 7. We must contain ourselves to the topic of Revelation chapter 11. But I am going to direct you to the previous series on our website, uh, True Blue SDA, and it is Prophecy Seminar Lesson 09, The Four Beasts and the Little Horn Power of Daniel 7. That's a fascinating study. So if you would like to get a summary of the exhibit that we're just talking about now, which is Lesson 12 and Exhibit 2, Identifying and Locating the 1260 Years of Persecution, then please have a look at Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 9. I think that will really capture your attention. All right, would you join me at the top of page 3? The solemn warnings of Revelation 11, 5 and 6 against attacking or interfering with the word of God, verse 6, makes it clear, as you can see in Exhibit 1, that the word of God has power to control and punish evil. Verse 5 says that those who oppose the word of God will be destroyed by fire. So let's have a look at Revelation 11, verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So friends, we're asking the question, how could the word of God, the Old Testament and New Testaments, actually be powerful like this? And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days 
of their prophecy. Do any of you remember an Old Testament story? How about 1 Kings 17 and verse 1? Do we know this man? This is Elijah the prophet standing before King Ahab. The scripture says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab the king, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Do you remember the story of what happened? The ravens brought bread and food out to Elijah, and his water was sure until the brook Cherith dried up. You know, friends, there are times in our lives when everything goes well, and this is the story here of Elijah, but then the brook dried up and we go through tough times. Sometimes when God dries up the brooks of our lives and our prayers are not being answered, it's time to move on and step out of faith, and that's exactly what Elijah did. We're in Revelation 11, verse 6, looking at the power of the two witnesses that had to be killed. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. Do you remember a time in the Old Testament when there was power over the waters? Of course, everyone remembers the 10 plagues of Egypt and Moses striking the Nile River and it turning to blood and the distress that caused. And then in Revelation 11:6, it says that these two witnesses have power to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So friends, we have a whole lesson towards the end of this series. And tonight we are actually halfway through. We are on lesson 12 of 24. So that's quite a milestone. So we are going to study in detail and depth the seven last plagues. We're in question four at the top of page three. Thanks for joining us. So we're asking the question who finally killed the two witnesses. We were told that they were powerful, but they're in sackcloth and ashes for the 1260-day year from 538 to 1798. But then after that time, they'd be killed. What does this mean? Revelation 11.7 gives us the answer. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Here's our answer. We're asked who finally killed the two witnesses, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. What happens next? We'll make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Who finally killed the two witnesses? It was the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. And that beast is Satan, but he does work through earthly powers. Friends, I just want to make an application on this text tonight. The question I'm raising is, why would anyone want to kill or destroy God's word? The answer is because his word has the power to break Satan and sin's hold on God's people. So Satan hates the word of God, the Old Testament and New Testament, the two witnesses, and he hates the power that they have to get people to break away from earthly habits and temptations and indulgences. God's word gives power, and that's why Satan always tries to destroy it and make sure that people never read it. I want to challenge you right now to take time out in the morning, even if it's only five or ten minutes to read God's word. Right now, I'm working my way through Daniel chapter 2, and it is such a blessing. 
It strengthens me for the battle, which is our life every day. Let me share with you the note under question four. We're talking about the beast that has sent us out of the bottomless pit. The beast from the pit is actually Satan, see Revelation 20, 1 to 3, in the primary sense. However, as in Revelation 12, 3 and 4, compared with Revelation 12, 7 to 9, the beast also represents an earthly kingdom through which Satan successfully worked. And we're going to name that kingdom in just a moment. So according to the interpretation of Revelation 11, 8 and 9, see exhibits 1 and 2, the nation Satan used to kill the Bible was grossly immoral Sodom, so it's given a name, and atheistic and God-hating Egypt. Killing God's witnesses was considered as serious as crucifying his son. So, friends, let's just give you a little bit more detail on what's contained in the lesson. So before we go to question five, please direct your attention to the screen. So what does Revelation 11.8 say? And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. So we have to ask ourselves in this symbology, what would Sodom, Sodom stand for and what would Egypt stand for? And it's not hard to work it out. It says where also our Lord was crucified. So friends, thinking back to Sodom, we remember we get the word sodomy from Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a place of great immorality. So there's something in history that happened that had to do with a great period of immorality. And what does Egypt remind us of? Do we remember Moses standing before the Pharaoh? Friends, Egypt was a great nation in ancient times that had many, many gods. So how could Egypt be atheistic? Egypt was atheistic in this way. In Exodus 5.2, Pharaoh addressed Moses and said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Who's Jehovah? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. So friends, we're looking for a nation that combined atheism with immorality. This are two powerful keys to what we're actually looking for. Join me in question five. How long would the two witnesses actually remain dead? We're in Revelation 11 and verse 9. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see there, the two witnesses, dead bodies, three and a half days or three days and a half. That's the very important point and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. How long would the two witnesses remain dead? The answer would be three days and a half. Let me give you some more on this. Please direct your attention to the screen. The Bible rule is one prophetic day equals one literal year. So let's go to some proof of that, Ezekiel 4.6. It says, I have appointed thee each day for a year. Now, no doctrine of the scripture ever stands or falls on just one text. So the scripture says in the Old Testament, in the um, 
in the truth of two or three witnesses, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. Let's go to Numbers 14.34. It also says that I'm giving you each day for a year, and that was the time that the spies were out spying out the land of Canaan. 40 days became 40 years. They had to go into the wilderness. So, friends, there's two very important points here that in Bible prophecy, one day stands for one literal year. The note says thus three and a half prophetic days equals three and a half literal years. Satan despises the Bible because it exposes his evil plans, his evil game plan, and uplifts Jesus, his arch enemy. You know, Satan's strategy is always to keep us away from the Bible at any cost. And so there's sport, there's the internet, there's social media, and there is Netflix, etc. You know, many people say they've got no time to read God's word because they say being busy is one of their biggest problems. But friends, we've got to stop right here and promise God to spend some time with his holy word daily. What could be more important than that? Because I'm suggesting if we don't do that, then we are also killing God's two witnesses by ignoring them and slighting them. And we are probably no better than this prophecy and what we're reading in Revelation chapter 11. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? We're at the top of page four in question six. Verses 11 and 12 of Revelation 11 point out that the two witnesses would be raised after three and a half years and ascend up to heaven. What is the symbolic meaning of ascended up to heaven? Before we're directed back to Daniel chapter 4, verse 22, we need to look at Revelation 11 and verse 12. So let's check it out. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. We're speaking about the two witnesses. And they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Let's dive back into the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 22. This is the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar goes mad and disappears for seven years. He's actually out the back of the palace acting like a Victor lawnmower. And uh, he's cutting the grass. He's eating grass like a wild animal. He is engaging with mental illness. And so, friends, what can we learn from this great chapter? It is thou, O king, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar II, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. So, friends, we're asking, what is the symbolic meaning of ascended up to heaven? Thou art become strong, for thy greatness reached unto heaven. Well, what does this actually mean? Friends, it means that the word of God would be highly exalted after it was resurrected. And it was. The British and Foreign Bible Society was organized in 1804. And the American Bible Society in 1816. So now the Bible became available to the man on the street after being chained to 
many monastery walls and pulpits in the Dark Ages. The Bible became a bestseller and has remained so to this day. Missionaries like Judson went to Burma, Carey went to India, Morrison went to China, and Moffat and Livingston went to Africa. Friends, the Word of God and missionary societies went around the world powerfully spreading the word of God. The two witnesses who'd gone up to heaven were now vindicated and they were being spread around the world against all odds. Friends, the gospel went to the world. The good news that makes the heart to sing and the feet to dance that God loves people, has a plan for their life and is coming back soon. We're halfway down page four and we're looking at our second heading. God's word destroyed. Let's find out who the nation was who was going to murder the word of God. Question seven, according to the prophecy of Revelation 11, the nation that Satan used to kill the Bible did its evil work against the scripture shortly before the 1260-year persecution ended in 1798. According to history, what nation fits the Bible specifications. And we need to first, before we answer this, read through the historical note. Please direct your attention to the screen. There's only one nation that could possibly fit, and that is the nation of France. It was during the French Revolution. It was during the so-called Age of Reason. The three and a half years were part of the reign of terror of the French Revolution, and this period began on the 26th of November of 1793, when a decree issued in Paris actually abolished all religion. The period ended on June 17 of 1797, when the French government removed restrictions against religion. Notice the time period, three and a half years. Years. Fascinating. During this crisis, the Bible was burned and banned or killed. All churches and temples were closed and worship of God abolished by the National Assembly. A 10-day week was voted, a 10-day working week. Every 10th day was celebrated with mirth and profanity. The existence of God was openly denied. Friends, this new calendar system only lasted 17 months if you do your homework. And it's interesting that we are not made on a 10-day cycle, are we? We are made on a seven-day cycle. I remember reading somewhere that horses were dropping dead in the street. They couldn't work a 10-day week. So, friends, this was supposedly called the age of reason. But was it? An immoral woman was named the goddess of reason. It was actually a showgirl from the opera, an immoral woman. And people actually worshipped her. Morals dropped to rock bottom. I remember reading that um, marriage was just downgraded as a mere license for immorality. You would get a marriage license, you would commit immorality and then move on. It even got worse, this expression, crush the wretch, referring to Christ was the motto of the revolution, this reign of terror. Atheism became the religion of France and it did not work. So friends, here is the so-called painting by Eugene Delacroix and this is 
the wretch that they call the Christ. Alan White in the book Great Controversy said, France crucified Christ in the person of his disciples. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 25, if you did it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. So crush the wretch, referring to Christ, was the motto of the revolution. It was to destroy religion. Why did that happen? People have been so tied down for so long by the church of the day, the big medieval church, the Church of Rome, during the Dark Ages that now they cut loose and they threw out religion and they wanted to even get rid of the priests. And so from all of the killing that was done, on behalf of the Church of the Middle Ages, of Protestants, the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, 70,000 Protestant Christians were butchered and killed. Then this then passed on to the people and they started a great time of killing. The killing went out of control. Friends, three and a half years later, a decree granting toleration of the scriptures was voted by the National Assembly. Here is an actual painting, uh, an illustration depicting all those people who are being rounded up to be guillotined. Um, the majority of them were Christians testifying to the word of God, and they were beheaded on the guillotine. Friends, what a terrible time. This was called the Age of Reason, and uh, this was during the French Revolution. So we're reading that. Three and a half years later, a decree granting toleration of the scriptures was voted by the National Assembly. It carried without a dissenting vote. In June 17, 1797, it all ended. Three and a half years after French abolished religion. I'd like to give you some extra information on this period that you might not have had time to research yourself. Let's go to Sir Walter Scott's book, Life of Napoleon, Volume 1, Chapter 17. Quote, the world for the first time heard an assembly of men born and educated in civilization and assuming the right to govern one of the finest of the European nations, uplift their voice to deny the most solemn truth which man's soul receives. And they renounce unanimously the belief and worship of a deity. So France became a nation that rejected all forms of religion and belief in God. It was outlawed. Let's go to George Storr's book, The Midnight Cry, page 47. But did France actually make war on the Bible? She did, he writes. And in 1793, a decree passed on the French Assembly forbidding the Bible. And under that decree, the Bibles were gathered and burned and every possible mark of contempt was heaped upon them and all the institutions of the Bible abolished. Baptism and the communion were abolished. The being of God was denied. And death pronounced to be an eternal sleep for eternity. The goddess of reason was set up in the person of a vile woman and publicly worshipped. So, friends, here's the so-called Delacroix painting of the French Revolution. Liberty leading the people uh, in 1833. Friends, this has been glorified. But I want to tell you, my favourite writer says this about this period. The people, speaking about the French people, rejected truth and falsehood together. 
they are mistaking license for liberty and the slaves of vice exalted in their imagined freedom. In the Great Controversy, page 282. So friends, although the painting says France and it was liberty leading the people, I believe that they mistook license for liberty and became a lawless nation. It was a fearsome time. According to the prophecy of Revelation 11, the nation that Satan used to kill the Bible did its evil work against the scripture shortly before the 1260-year persecution ended in 1798. According to history, what nation fits the Bible specifications? The only answer can be in that time period, atheistic France is the answer. Join me in question eight at the bottom of page four. An earthquake in symbolism means an upheaval, a visitation of God's power. When the earthquake struck, what actually happened in Revelation 11 and verse 13? And the same hour was there a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake was slain of men 7,000 and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, friends, what happened during this great earthquake? The scripture says the tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. Let me share with you the note at the top of page five. Please be directed to the screen for the visuals. Well, the city here mentioned, of course, is the papacy, the, uh, the Vatican in Revelation 17, 18, which was supported by the 10 kings or 10 nations of Europe. Revelation 17, see verses 12 and 13. So the earthquake which hit the papacy, of course, was the capture of the Pope in 1798. Remember, that is the end of the 1260-year period. It's the end of the Dark Ages. It's the end of the Reign of Terror. France, which is one of the 10 kings of Europe, is the 10th, is the one-tenth that fell because for a brief period, she withdrew her support from the papacy, the Church of Rome, and all other churches. So the 7,000 men, or names, as the margin says, refers to the titled nobility of the city, all of which had their titles removed during the French Revolution. So, friends, that's the end of the first part of the beast from the bottomless pit. We have gone through the role of France with atheism and with immorality, but now we go on to what it birthed and heading number three the origin of atheistic communism things are going to get worse militant atheism in question nine began in france but it did not end there what does god say about the spread of evil we go to galatians 5 and verse 9 paul writes to the church at galatia a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump so, friends, what does God say about the spread of evil? A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Friends, it's interesting that when you put yeast and mix it into bread and then bake it, it goes through the whole mixture and rises the whole thing. A little leaven puffs up the whole lump. It spreads quite quickly. A little evil can become big very, very soon and quickly. 
So the religion of atheism, and it is a religion, spread from France to the north and east of the vast country of Russia. In the Russian political revolution of 1917, a vital part of the uprising was an attack upon religion. Today, Russians' millions are overwhelmingly atheistic people, and the virus has swept across the world, infiltrating everywhere and gaining adherence to an alarming degree. The school systems of the world dispense atheism in their adherence to evolution. Satan's movement to defy God has virtually captured the sciences. The devil is angry and militant, but he's brilliant and determined. His religion of atheism has engulfed a third of the world and is growing rapidly. Notice here a chart, a world map of the atheistic regions. You'll notice there on the legend in the lower left-hand corner that the purple and dark purple are the 30 to 50% of countries that are strongly atheistic from least to most in the 30 to 40% are France and Czechoslovakia in Europe there, the uh, light purple, the dark purple, and then it moves on to the 40 to 50% range with Japan and China. So friends, you can see that this rebellion against God's way was very, very strong in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. So the good news is that that's the end of all the bad news. Let's go to the good news. But before we do, I have one last thing to share with you about Satan's strategy, which is the last bit of bad news. Friends, if Satan's strategy is to bring atheism in, and atheism means no belief in God, then no belief in God can lead to there's no belief in a creator. And having no creator can lead to no Sabbath because if there's no creator, there's no need to worship the creator. And no Sabbath can lead to no rest between God and men. So no rest would lead to continual activity. Continual activity would lead to no thoughts of God. And no thoughts of God would lead to no belief in God. And so no belief in God would lead to atheism. Friends, Satan the devil has had 6,000 plus years to devise a strategy for conquering this world. And so his strategy was atheism and immorality and evolution and atheistic communism. Let's go to the good news at the bottom of page five, our fourth heading, Revelations, three angels' messages. It's time for God to fight back. The three-point message of God's great movement is pictured in Revelation chapter 14. It's called the everlasting gospel. How widely does God say it will be preached in Revelation 14 and verse 6? And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So let's go to our answer under question 10. How widely does God say it will be preached? It will be preached every nation. Kindred actually means kind of people or actually tribe. So it will be preached to every nation, every tribe, every language group, and every people group. So that means the whole world. 
the three angels' message will go to the whole world. It'll be worldwide. In fact, no one will be left out. All will clearly understand God's requirements and his love. No one has a right to preach anything he chooses and call it the gospel. God commands that the everlasting gospel of love for these last days must include his three-point message of Revelation 14, 6 to 12. Let's summarize the three angels' messages. Number one, in uh, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, we are called to worship the Creator. Then in verse 8, we are told to leave Babylon and all false religion behind and move out of it, move away from it. In fact, whatever the world's doing, whatever the majority are doing, that's not what God's asking us to do. We are to stand out, step back, and keep his word pure and faithful. And number three, we are to receive the seal of God. So worship the creator, step out of Babylon, and receive the seal of God. What is the first part of God's message for today? Revelation 14 and verse 7. We've just summarized this. Let's go into the detail. We are told to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So the first part of God's message for today, the first angel's message says that we are to fear, to reverence and, and, and give God our worship to give glory to him. We are living in the judgment hour. The hour of his judgment is come. It's the judgment day. And we need to worship him that made heaven and the earth. Friends, did you ever notice that this message is opposed to evolution? It says here, worship the creator because the hour of his judgment is here. We will study the judgment message in lessons 14 and 15. Did you remember that the judgment has already begun? In fact, Lesson 10 made it clear that God asked his people to keep his Sabbath day as proof that they accept him as creator. Just want to pause here a moment and ask, can anyone see God's name written here in the word Sabbath? The word Sabbath means rest, to cease from activity. Is God's name in the Sabbath? It certainly is. Can you see it? Right there in the heart. And there it is, Abba from the Greek word father, from Ab. So friends, Jesus called his father Daddy when he said Abba, Father. So God's name is actually written in the Sabbath day. Question 12, what is the second part of God's great message for today? We go to Revelation 14.8, then jump to 18, 2 and 4. What's the second angel's message? And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Notice Babylon is fallen. She's fallen and it's spoken about twice. That's how important it is. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. I would like to go into more detail on this verse, but we'll leave that for another lesson. Friends, we are told to come out of Babylon, my people. God calls the people in Babylon his people. He loves people in all religions. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plague. So, friends, God 
does not agree with the system of Babylon. He didn't set it up and he says, get out of there before her sins that pile up to heaven will cause her to receive the plagues. Babylon is fallen. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. The second point of the message is Babylon is fallen. Get out quickly or you'll be involved in her sins and you'll receive her plagues. We will actually study more about Babylon in Lesson 21 and we'll study about the seven last plagues in Lesson 22. Do you actually know what Babylon is? And are you certain you are not in Babylon? We must all ask ourselves that searching question and give an answer. Question 13, what warning does the third part of God's message give? The three angels' messages in Revelation 14, 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. What warning does the third part of God's message give? It's a very solemn warning. If any man, if any woman, if any person worship the beast power and earthly power and receive the mark of that earthly power, the same person shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Friends, it's very, very clear that this is something we must not do. God is here saying that if a person receives the mark of the beast, he's lost and will receive the plagues. Do you know positively what the mark of the beast is? We will study the mark of the beast when we get to lesson 19. Let's have a look at our fifth heading. God will finish the work. Let's get some more good news. So what happens as soon as the three-point message, the three angels' message, reaches the entire world? We go to Revelation 14 and verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Friends, this is the Lord Jesus Christ coming back. So he sits on a white cloud. He sits there like one unto the Son of Man. And that is Jesus' favorite expression for himself, the Son of Man. So Jesus returns in the cloud as soon as his message reaches every person on earth. He won't come back until all people have heard and clearly understood his wonderful plan of salvation and his invitation for them all to live with him eternally in his glorious new kingdom. But all who are lost will be lost with full understanding. Jesus is fair. He will see that all clearly see and understand the life and death issues. Question 15, what does God promise in regard to his great three-point message in it reaching the world, the three angels' message? We go to Romans 9, 28. For he will finish his work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. What does God promise in regard to this three angels' messages? God has to actually finish the work and cut it short in righteousness or there'd be none of his people left on the earth because Satan wants to kill them and destroy them. This is a promise. God himself will finish it up. He will cut short the time required 
It is foolish to talk of the immensity and impossibility of the unfinished task when God has personally promised to cut it short and finish it quickly. We are the people who will live to see the king return. Are you ready? Friends, why will many be lost when Jesus actually returns? We go into the Old Testament and go to the minor prophet Hosea, chapter 4 and verse 6. Hosea wrote in lament, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, God says, I will also reject thee. How many people will be lost when Jesus returns, friends? Unfortunately, the majority. They are going to be destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because they've rejected knowledge, God is also going to reject them. Friends, today, the knowledge of God's word, even in Christian churches, is at a very low ebb. So I'm challenging you to get into your Bible study. Go down deep. Know the heart and the mind of God. God will speak to you through his word, and it will bring you joy and happiness and peace. That's my testimony. I'm reading the note under 16 at the bottom. Of page seven. Many will be lost because God gave them information or knowledge and they refused to hear it. People who were lost in Noah's day knew not for the same reason. That is that they actually wouldn't listen. In Matthew 24, 37 to 39, you can read that story. Friends, the warning about receiving the messages of revelation is specific. When Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Our last heading, six of six, is Jesus calls his sheep. As one of Jesus' sheep, what will I want to do in John 10 and verse 27? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Friends, I remember reading the story of two young boys who were shepherds who met up on a trail out in the wilderness and as they stopped to chat they had a meal together and then as they went to leave they realized that all their sheep had become mixed up and one boy said what are we going to do how can we separate the sheep and the other boy said not a problem you walk your way and i'll walk my way let's call to the sheep because our sheep will know our voice as one of jesus sheep what will i want to do The answer is, Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. How are we actually going to hear his voice? Friends, we can hear God speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. We can also hear God speaking to us through his word. What a precious, precious experience that is. Question 18, why has Jesus given us the information contained in his word? We go to John 15 and verse 11. Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. Friends, many people think the Christian life is a life of drudgery and despair, but it's not. It's absolutely not. These things have I spoken unto you, that your joy may be full. Friends, Christians are not to be like cows with long faces. We are allowed to allow our faces to register the joy that knowing Jesus brings us. So if you are happy and a Christian, please notify your face. You know, Jesus wants us to be happy, doesn't it? Following where Jesus leads and heeding his loving counsel is the only way to joy and happiness.
Question 19, what does Jesus promise us as a free gift in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus promise us as a free gift? So that we can say, thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants a victory. People who win never say, oh, it's just a game. It's the most important game in town. So we need to be focusing on the victory of knowing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. The bloodstained pathway to heaven, that's the only way to get there. Victory is victory over sin and evil comes as a free gift from Jesus. We need to only accept it. Question 20, will you accept the victory that Jesus offers as a gift so he can fill your life with his happiness and joy? I've put yes, please. That's exactly what I want. Friends, we started off tonight with the discovery points. Let's see if you can answer these now. What are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks or the two lampstands? What do they actually represent? And your answer is they represent the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments. Question two. So what did olive oil represent? Of course, it is a symbol of who? It's a very powerful symbol of the Holy Spirit, often done through anointing people with oil. Number three, what nation actually killed the Bible? and went into atheism, that's very simple. It was France during the French Revolution that was called the so-called Age of Reason, an age of non-reason, an age of bloodletting and murder, where the streets flowed red with the blood of Protestants, and then the religious orders were also beheaded and guillotined. How many years did the persecution last? It lasted in total, in the total period, a total of 1,260 years. Question five, when did that persecution start and finish? The starting date was 538 AD when Pope Vigilus ascended the papal throne and finished in 1798 when Pope Pius VI was taken captive by Napoleon's French General Berthier or Berthier in 1798, I believe it was February 20. 1798. Friends, if you would like more information on the historical period tonight of the French Revolution, I'm recommending this book called The Great Controversy, written by Ellen White, the epic story of the battle between Christ and Satan. So friends, you need to be reading through chapter 15. And I actually did this 24 hours ago. I spent an hour reading this chapter. I was tempted to give a lot more detail in tonight's lesson, but it wasn't just all about the French Revolution. But please go through that and you will see actually why the French Revolution actually happened. All the answers are given there in Chapter 15, the Bible and the French Revolution in the great book, The Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan by Ellen G. White. Well, we've got something different for the quiz tonight. I hope you're ready in a moment. Let's go through our response questions. Number one, if you sense more and more that God's word, especially the book of Revelation, is very important for people living in the last days to know about, would you like to place a tick in box number one? Number two, are you ready to say that you want to worship the creator of heaven and earth and that you want to have nothing to do with Babylon? I do. Do you want victory, joy, and happiness in your life? 
and that you want to follow Jesus and do his will, would you place a tick in box number two? All right, so for our quiz questions tonight, some of you are finding them too easy, so we're going to give you a workout tonight. We are going to ask you to unscramble the scrambled word, so you have to fill in the missing blank. Number one, I will give you the answers after we've done the whole five, giving you some extra time. You might need it. Number one, there's no tricks here. The Old and New Testaments are gods to something. There's the word. You have to unscramble it. Write that word in down on the quiz envelope in quiz seminar gap number one. The Old and New Testaments are gods to something. Number two, the something, the blank, killed the two witnesses. So we're asking who killed the two witnesses. Number three, God's blank something point message of Revelation 14 is called the what? The everlasting gospel. So God's something point message of Revelation 14 is called the everlasting gospel. All right, this is giving your brain a workout, isn't it? Number four, the first part of God's message for today. This is the first part of the three angels' messages to worship the something, to worship the blank. You need to fill in the missing word and unscramble that word that's on the screen. That shouldn't be too hard. And finally, our fifth question, many will be something, fill in the missing word, when Jesus returns because of a lack of Knowledge, and that's uh, Hosea 4.6. We just did that a few moments ago. So, friends, I hope you've got your answers locked in there. Let's go through them now, and let's go back to question one. The Old and New Testaments are God's too. Call it out. <laughs> witnesses, correct. Number two, the something killed the two witnesses. Call it out. Who is it? The what? The something from the bottomless pit. The answer is the beast. Number three, God's something point message. How many points are in that message? The answer is three. It's a three-point message. It's a three angels message. The first part of God's message for today is to worship the who? The creator. And number five, many will be something when Jesus returns because of a lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6 says that many will be destroyed. Friends, I'm challenging you again to get into God's word that you might know that God loves you, has a plan for your life and is coming back soon. Well, what do we learn tonight in Lesson 12? We have learned that there are two worldwide messages. One is God's message, the three angels' messages, getting people ready for heaven. The other was a message from the dark side, from Satan, which was to hate God, to not believe in God, which is atheism, leading to evolution, and was all mixed up with immorality. So tonight the message is to worship the God of heaven. What are we going to be studying next time in session 13? We're looking at Revelation's keys of death. We're going to look at these four points and answer these five points. What happens when we die? Where do we actually go when we die? This is what a lot of people don't know the answer to. Number three, do we possess an undying immortal soul? Many people say we do, that the soul can't die. Number four, after death, when do we actually live again? And number five, does the Bible teaching on death make sense? Now, friends, we're also going to answer this question. Who are the spirits of spiritualism? So if after a loved one dies, they turn up at the end of your bed in the middle of the night, 
is that really your auntie or uncle in the bedroom with you? What does the Bible say? Well, thank you for joining me for session number 12. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Holy Spirit, the historical material of Revelation 11 about the two witnesses is absolutely incredible, Lord. It's fascinating to study and see how accurate your word was and how it came true. We thank you that the word of God was lifted up to heaven and spread around the world. And in these last days, we had to give these messages on behalf of the three angels to warn people to worship you, to come out of false religions, and then to receive the seal of God. Bless everyone who continues to hear these words and study with wisdom and understanding and joy in their heart, we ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. It's my pleasure to uh, thank you for being with us tonight. And uh, that is the end of our lesson. And look forward to seeing you in session 13 as we study about what happens in death. So we're going to say thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Revelation with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word, that's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.